It is good to be together this morning. Um, it's such a joy to come back to church. Um, do you want to just mention next week? I've got a little surprise for everyone. I am bringing in a guest preacher, and we are going to talk about a subject that I think a lot of us are looking at right now in the media, and it has to do with race, um, the gospel and race. I want to tell you a little bit about our speaker. His name's Derek Jackson, and God's providence is incredible to me. It was um, over 11 years ago now that I was serving in Chicago, finishing up my degree before I came here, and I served on a church staff with Pastor Derek Jackson. Um, he's an African-American pastor. We were serving in a multicultural church named Lorimer Baptist, and Derek was serving as the, the youth and family pastor, and I was a measly little intern. Uh, so they just told me what to do. I made pretty good coffee at that time. Um, but here's God's providence. Three years ago uh, or so, when we joined Converge, I went to one of our first meetings, and guess who lives in Massachusetts as a pastor now? Derek. So we were talking about this issue, and I just said, you know, Derek, I, I think that our people need to hear more on this. And, you know, Derek, as an African-American pastor, loves the Word of God. He's lived it. He gets it. And so he's coming next week, and I couldn't be more excited as he shares that with us. But we're not there this week. You guys have to deal with me now. And we are going to be finishing this series, The Core now remember the, the big ideas of this series, right? The core foundations of the faith, the Messiah, the message, the mission. And today, we are going to talk about the members. As I was watching that video, I couldn't help but think to myself, this is how it's supposed to be. That three months of lockdown was not how church is supposed to be. When you can think of the church and its impact like this, I think of it like a water hose, okay? A water hose without a nozzle of any sort really doesn't produce that much pressure, does it? It's pretty good for, you know, watering plants around the garden, but you wouldn't want to use it to clean your sidewalk or to try to strip stain from a deck or anything like that. So what do you do? You take that garden hose, and you run that same stream of water through a pressure washer. And that pressure washer concentrates the force of the water to where you don't want to stick your finger in the beam of the pressure washer. It's intense. It could strip paint off a building. When the church comes together, when the church gathers, it becomes, in my mind, a community that is like that pressure washer. As I've been thinking about this age and stage of church history that we're living in right now, I think one of our unique challenges has to do with this fourth core value, the members. Because the church all across America and even more broadly in the world has now gone virtual. We're there. We're in that age. And uh, 
The problem with virtual, well, there's a blessing and a curse to it. The blessing, of course, is the gospel going out via social media and other platforms like that. But I think the, the, the curse is that it's so easy, so comfortable, so tempting to stay virtual. But the church should never be exclusively virtual. The church needs to be analog, seriously. We need to come together. And as we look at Acts chapter 2 this morning, we are going to see that the first church gathered. And in gathering, that church knew who their people were, and they knew that together they were better. Better together. So let's take a look. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Now God's word says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's begin as we unpack this passage with verse 42, asking the question, what is meaningful membership? Now, I want you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of someone living in Jerusalem at this time, post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost. What would they have seen? Well, they would have seen this group of Jewish individuals claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. They would have seen these Jesus' followers gathering together. In fact, as they would go into the temple, they would have seen them praying and praising and preaching about Jesus. I think they would have also taken note of how close and intimate this gathering of Jesus' followers was. In fact, they might have even thought they seemed to be more closely knit than some families I know. You see, this was what the first Christ community looked like. So what is meaningful membership? Well, that means this, identifying with, belonging to, and committing myself to community. Now, how did this community happen? Well, I want you to take and notice what Luke doesn't say. You know, Luke doesn't say that they all came together because they were of the same ethnicity and there was no cultural tension then and the church could just prosper happily because everyone was alike. You know, he also doesn't say that they were all middle class and so they decided to build for themselves a suburb so everyone could be safe and together. He didn't say either that they were devoted to riding motorcycles they had that common interest, and one of them felt led and inspired to organize a group of them to ride from Jerusalem to Rome so that they could raise awareness about Jesus. And he certainly didn't say that they were all like 
25-year-olds to 35-year-olds with 2.5 kids. And because of the life stage that they were at and the Christians put on these awesome Sunday school programs, they had this context for relationships and they all became friends and the church grew and prospered. No, in fact, as you look at this, it appears to me that there's only one thing that brings these people together. They believed the message about the Messiah. In fact, as you look at this, their shared belief in Jesus broke down real barriers that separate people. Uh, race, gender, socioeconomic status, age, and yes, even things as common as common interests. In fact, if you go into a church and one, either you see that church dividing over these kind of things, or two, you see the church growing primarily because of these things, you have to ask the question, where is the Holy Spirit? Where is he? Remember what his job is? The Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus and when Jesus comes into a community, you look at that community and you think to yourself, there is no reason that this group of people should be together and liking each other. But they do because of him. Now, every Christian church should look at Acts 2.42 as the spiritual blueprint for healthy community. It's the building blocks of what good community looks like. And as you look at this passage, I want you to note two key building blocks that they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, some of you might be looking at that, and you're pretty sharp Bible students, and you're saying, didn't he say four things, though? He also talked about the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, as I studied this passage, commentators were divided on whether Luke intended to express four key ideas or just two. So if you go the approach that I'm suggesting, he's talking about the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers elaborates what fellowship looks like. And I think that's what we see here in the scriptures. So the apostles' teaching was the idea that the church met and sat under the taught word of God. They were a community of learners and appliers of Jesus' words. It was called the apostles' teaching because the apostles were the disciples who followed Jesus around and, you know, heard him teach. And so they were the ones who then transferred what they had heard, saw, and learned onto the church. And over time they wrote what they saw, heard, and learned down. And that became the New Testament. So we have books called Gospels, and we have these letters called Epistles, and, and, and then you get to Revelation, which is more of a, an apocalyptic type of literature. Now, when they were writing these things, they understood themselves to be writing inspired Scripture. What do I mean by that? It's as, it's as if, as they write, they're penning the very words of God. 
Peter talked about what inspiration was in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He said this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that they understood they were writing Scripture? Well, later in that same letter, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 that Paul's writings were Scripture. And in some of Paul's writings, you see him quote Luke and say that it is Scripture. So they understood what God the Holy Spirit was doing through them. And that's why this book, church, is the church's only book. Now, there's a lot of books out there, aren't there? I love to read. Uh, Every year, the New York Times puts out a bestseller list, and some really good books find their way on that list. There's some great information. But you know what I've found with all of those books is they tend to be prominent and exciting for about four or five years, and then they find their way on the back shelf. Give it a hundred years, and you won't even know any of those titles. I don't know hardly any titles from a hundred years ago, except for maybe the classics. But this book, this book is the church's book, because I can 100% guarantee you that it contains and is the very Word of God. And so every time I go back to this book, it it challenges me in new and fresh ways. I I know God's will. I know what God wants me to do. Those other books are about information. This book, though, is about transformation. Ruth Bell Graham was once asked, how does a person find wisdom? And she said this. She said, read, read, read. But remember, the Bible's always home base. And here's the thing about this word. It's not about how many times you've gone through this book. It's about how many times this book has gone through you. Now, I also want you to notice something about the word. This first church didn't think about the word in just purely individualistic terms. They didn't think, like, if I go and have my quiet time and it's me, myself, and Jesus, then I'm going to grow and flourish. No, they understood that they needed a communal word, the preaching and teaching of the word. Now, why does God want us to sit under teaching? I think it's because he knows how we operate. (laughs) I don't know about you, but as I make my way through the Bible, I am keenly interested in the passages that encourage me, and I avoid many of the passages that bring out my personal struggles and sins. Now, I don't mind spending days on any of the passages that deal with Katie's personal struggles and sins, but for whatever reason, my Bible reading plan doesn't get to me very often. But when I sit under the preached word, particularly when a a preacher is using a style of preaching I call expository preaching. That's what we call it. 
They're making their way through the Bible, and they're dealing with the Bible on the Bible's terms. They're not telling you about what they think, and this is, you know, the modern relevant subject of the day. No, they're talking to you about what God thinks and how he wants us to live. And the way that they do this is they open up the Bible, they read the Bible to you, they explain what it says, they illustrate it, and they apply it. And when we as Christians sit under a healthy diet of that, we grow together. It's good for our souls. Believe me, you need to hear a word from God and not a word from Rob. And you don't need sermons that primarily focus on your felt needs. Because it turns out that some of my biggest needs are unfelt and I need to hear that from God. Now let's look at a second building block, fellowship. Now this word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. I'm sure some of you have heard that word before. This is one of those Greek words that if you've been in church from some time, you've probably heard it before. Another familiar word is agape, love, right? And it basically means sharing in common. That's the most basic idea of the word. But what I've come to discover as I've been through the Bible more and more is that the Bible is not a theological dictionary, okay? So we don't go into the scriptures and say, okay, I'm, what does fellowship mean? And then I go to a verse and the verse says, fellowship means blah, 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 blah. No, the Bible shows us theological concepts. We looked at that when we looked at stories of grace. So we're seeing a picture of fellowship here in Acts. And the two things that he uses to intensify the meaning of the word, the breaking of bread, which I understand to mean more generally table fellowship, believers sitting together. It turns out that when you feed me, I like you a lot more. It's kind of true. So these believers ate together. They spent time together, and it it built a a depth of relationship amongst, amongst them. Now, I also believe that that involved taking the Lord's Supper because they often would have table fellowship, and that would lead into something deeper spiritually. The prayers, again, I understand that to be a general understanding of they prayed together regularly. So that's what this fellowship looks like. That's what it's centered around. But let's go to verses 44 and 45, and we're going to see even more of this mosaic. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So as you look at this mosaic, you see more about fellowship. There's a closeness, an intimacy, a trust, a reliance. You know, as you look at this, you you come to realize that fellowship is different than friendship. Now, here's the thing. I believe, and I believe the Bible tells us this, that 
believers need to build deep, meaningful friendships. Friendship is good for you. God uses it greatly. The Proverbs talks about a friend who walks more closely with you than a brother. But fellowship is not based on this, the set of common interests like friendship is. Fellowship is based upon common purpose. So as you're looking at this first church, there's this spirit-led unity. I was doing our Thrive study. It's the, the, the study one that was following the Woodlawn story about racial reconciliation in Alabama when they first integrated the schools and taking you into the scriptures and showing why the gospel can transform a situation like that. And Dr. Tony Evans defined unity like this. He said, unity is uniqueness in unison. I love that. So the church is a diverse group of people, different types, all different backgrounds, devoting themselves to a common purpose together. Healthy churches, I'm going to say it again, come together with people who have nothing in common other than Jesus. Now let's also look at another aspect of this fellowship Luke shows us involves sharing the spiritual life together. And I think that's key and important. And when we think about the church we got to think about how does that happen? How do people share spiritual life together? I don't think it happens best on a Sunday morning between services during a coffee hour. I think that time's good. I think it's good for making relationships and getting to know names and catching up. But it's not so good for fellowship. Fellowship is not like a Wednesday night potluck dinner where we stuff ourselves with fried chicken. No, it goes deeper than that. And that's why here at this church, we seek to create discipleship program, programming that facilitates fellowship. Uh, we look at discipleship programs like Women's Bible Study Activate and Thrive as augmenting what we do here on Sunday morning. You see, Sunday morning is teaching-centric. We're sitting in rows, and I'm talking through the Bible with you. Discipleship community is fellowship-centric. We're not sitting in rows together hearing someone teach us. We're sitting in circles, sharing in the Word of God together, sharing in what God's doing in our life together, sharing in prayer together. And as we look at Acts 2, I'm telling you, this is what we need. We need both. You need teaching-centric. You need fellowship-centric to grow as the body of Christ. Well, how do you get into that? How do you get into relationship that's centered around the common purpose? I think of it like this. There's an acronym that's helpful to me. You need relationships where people are willing to hand you a bar of soap because we walk into the church messy and dirty and we need one another to get clean. So what is soap? Well, soap, you can think of it as centering relationships around these four things. S for scripture. O for outreach. A for accountability. P for prayer. Now tell me, as you look through Acts 2, 42 to 47, 
Don't you see all of those things in these relationships? I do. These believers are handing each other soap all the time. And as a result, God's growing them. I want you to also see verse 45 there. Fellowship involves mutual supports. Luke says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I remember when I was first reading this verse as a young believer at the age of 18, making my way through the Bible. And I got to tell you, I came to two pretty significant dilemmas as I looked at this verse. The first dilemma was, I was like, do I got to sell all my stuff right now? And, you know, I didn't have a lot, but I had a guitar and I liked it and I didn't want to have to sell it. I don't know if that was the best, like, impulsive response to the passage. But I found myself relieved as I went back and reread what Luke said. Because notice Luke doesn't say that these believers sold everything, all of their possessions, and then went and lived in cardboard boxes. No, he says that they sold possessions to take care of one another's needs. The second dilemma was this idea of looking at this passage, and I wondered if Scripture was calling for some form of communalism. Now, communalism is that idea where we all equally share everything. So, you know, like there's some men in the church, like Earl Range, for example, who has a boat, and I'm very happy to apply the passage to say that, Earl, your boat is my boat. (laughs) He might not want it applied that way, right? As I look at the scriptures, I think that Luke is showing us something more significant than communalism. He's showing a church that met the needs, the physical needs of their poorest members through cheerful, voluntary generosity. Isn't that what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians when he said, we should not give under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver? So they were so eager to meet needs. They saw one of their fellow Christian brothers or sisters, and and some of these believers were thinking to themselves, you know, I've got that second or third house, and I don't know if I need it. And and he or she can't put food on the table. I think I'm going to sell that and help him or her out. Now, the Bible does not speak of redistributing wealth in terms of someone who doesn't want to work receiving funds from someone who has earned. In fact, it says, if they won't work, they shouldn't eat. But all over the place, the Bible talks to us about voluntary, cheerful generosity, meeting real needs when God has prospered us and given to us so much. Now, when it comes to care for our church I've got to say this. I mean, we can always grow and we can always do better. But my big message as your pastor today is keep doing what you're doing. It's incredible. I've been so touched in my 10 years here to watch how this church has loved and cared for one another. And, you know, I'm going to name drop a couple of people. I know they don't want me to do this, but eh, I have the pulpit, so I do what I want. And um, one of them that comes to mind for me is Andrea Marcelli. 
she has just loved and cared for Isaac Schrager in such a special way. It's taught me a lot about what it means to come alongside of someone. I think of uh, our brother in the room, Dean Smith, just recently has invested so much time and energy to attending to the end-of-life details for Reverend Don Tremont. And Dean, you did an incredible job. The funeral on Saturday was beautiful. Um, but I'll tell you, Dean and Reverend Don Tremont have no family relation, at least physical, earthly family relation, but spiritually, absolutely. Another brother that comes to mind is Hap, Hap Happenny. He has gone for several members of our church who have been in extended hospital situations, sat at their bedside, befriended them, prayed with them. Uh, we just had the celebration of life ceremony for Harold Van Cleef, one of our members who passed away. And Hap cried in that funeral as if he had lost a brother. Now, I go on and on. I mean, I think of our deacon fellowship, and this is what they do. They're called to this. They love, they give, they, they, they use the gifts that God's given them for that purpose. But I know that there's so many unsung heroes as well. When we were going through that economic crisis, the budget committee and deacon fellowship were putting our minds together and asking, how can we meet needs in tangible ways right now? And so we developed this family relief plan where members who may be losing their jobs and income immediately could have some grocery money on a monthly basis. And as we were looking at the overall finances of the church, we looked at that, that nest egg or saving that God's blessed us with over the years. But you know what happened at the economic crisis? That thing was cut off by 30%. Boom, like that overnight. Now those budget committee members, they just said, don't care. We're going to take care of God's needs. This isn't about growing a fund. This is about using this when God calls us to use it. So we had determined to set aside $20,000 to meet needs in the church. But you know what was incredible? God says, no, I don't need that. Because along the way, members of this church, some two weeks before we announced this plan, had given, just on impulse, because they knew that this was coming, over $15,000. I mean, isn't that incredible? You see, there's so much that the church can do when the church is in real fellowship. And it beautifully paints for the community a picture of Christ in us. And I know that I've missed so many of you. <laughs> but you didn't do it because you wanted to hear a sermon shout out. You did it because you love Jesus. Well, let's look at the results if you look at Acts 2, 46 and 47, you see the results. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Now, I want us to notice here that when the church knows the word well, and practices real fellowship, the church becomes contagious. Now, why is that? Why does the world look at what the church is doing and say, I want some of that? Well, I think a couple of things happen. 
I think first, when the church is engaging in real fellowship, the church learns how to talk about Jesus together. As I sit around with people, I can very quickly tell if they're sharing their faith or not. You know how I can? Because if they're sitting with me and other believers outside of the context of Sunday morning church and they're talking about Jesus, I know that Jesus is making a difference in their heart and I know that that's transferring into their other relationships. So if I go to dinner with someone and they don't say Jesus one time, I unfortunately judge them a little bit and say, I don't think they're sharing Jesus. <laughs> but the other night, I had dinner with Joyce Hassinger and Joyce, I mean, Joyce just bubbles Jesus <laughs> when you talk to her. She starts talking about Jesus, and my mind just immediately goes there. I'm like, I know she tells people about Jesus, and she confirmed my suspicion. When we were in the conversation some 10 minutes later, she launches into, well, and I've got this neighbor that I'm praying for, and I've invited this one to church, and, and I'm praying for this one because they have this need, and I know Jesus can meet it, and, and I told them that Jesus can meet it. You know, when we talk about Jesus, instead of holding on to this Western value of privatistic religion, it makes a difference in the community. I also noticed something else about this real fellowship. It's contagious because it naturally orients itself upward and outward. Love towards God and love towards neighbor. So as these believers are doing these soap relationships, handing soap to one another, scripture outreach, accountability, prayer, they're loving their neighbor. Now again, going back to our Western mindset, we tend to think of a community in terms of an individual perspective. We ask the question, what can the community do for me? How can the community meet my, re my needs and protect my rights? But the biblical picture of community is so different from that. The biblical picture is not what do I receive, though I want to say this, parenthetical statement, okay? Get this one. When you get it, when you realize that generosity is a lifestyle and blessing others is a lifestyle, you get so much more than people who don't get it. Okay, close the parenthesis right there. So when someone receives from the church, when they, they don't view it as receiving, but of what they can get and give, that's when you see God do things in that person's life. It's incredible. So healthy churches cannot help but love their community. They, they love their community because God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And as they become transformed by that message they feel driven into that lost community to shine the light of Jesus into that community. Remember, church, we are an aircraft carrier, right? Not a battleship and definitely not a luxury cruise, okay? Just want to let you know that right off the bat. So you come here to get refueled and repaired, and then you go back out to the front. We gather together to lift up the name of Jesus and to be filled, and then we scatter into the places in our spheres of influence to pour out the sponge of blessing on the community. Now, I know that some of you have believed a falsehood. You've come to believe 
that God can't use you, that you're not qualified, you're not gifted enough, you're not capable to share Jesus with others. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to what this one author shares. Luke, the writer of Acts, goes out of his way in Acts to show us that the gospel travels fastest around the world in the mouths of regular Christians than it does through full-time vocational Christian workers. You cannot separate members from the mission. You, the church, are God's plan A for reaching the world, and there isn't a plan B. And whenever the church descends into this kind of professional class Christianity where you're looking to the preacher to do it all, you know what happens to the church? It dies. But when the members get active, when they realize that they're the planes on the aircraft carrier, the church flourishes. I want us to see one final thing before we close down. Uh, If you guys seen the movie The Invisible Man or read the comic books or anything like that. Now, when, when you look at those, uh, the Invisible Man shows, how do they often resolve bringing the Invisible Man out, you know, exposing him? It tended to be that they would either set up a trap or someone would have a bucket of paint, right? And so he would come through and they would cover the Invisible Man with paint and then everyone knew where he was. Now, It's our job as the church to be like that paint for the invisible man. We, the church, make the invisible Christ visible to the community when they see Jesus lived out in our lives. For so many people, sermons and and preaching about Jesus are like so many words to them. They're words among other words. I have people who come here every single year for Christmas and Easter. I've preached the gospel to them. I mean, I've thought of every which way to change it up, to make it fresh, to make it relevant. But it's just so many words. Those people need the living illustration of Christ's church living the message. Remember, both are necessary. The message, Christians need to be able to speak it clearly, convincingly but they also need to see the members. When they see you living it, you paint the invisible Christ in a beautiful way that makes him appealing to them. John Stott has always had a wonderful way of summarizing big ideas in concise ways. He spoke of this first church as a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and an evangelistic church. Now, that sounds familiar to me. That kind of sounds like our vision statement here. I remember when I was first writing this five years ago, dreaming about, you know, Lord, what would you have us be as a church? These words came to mind, a worshiping church, a transformational church, a missional church. Now, I know the language can sound a little wooden, and I go up to you guys sometimes and I say, what's our vision statement? And you're like, oh, transformation, something, mission. All right, let's learn that, right? Worship, transformation, mission. Now, worship 
is the start of the vision. Because in order to have God dramatically change your life, you have to come to terms with the reality that he is Lord of all. And until you come to that reality and recognize his right to rule your life, you're going to try to rule your life. You're going to say, I'm in charge. So worship is the humbling of the self. That takes us then to receptivity to transformation, which is the gospel that the Son of God died in your place so that you might have salvation. And this transformation is all about what God is doing in us and changing us into a new person. And transformation, I might add, requires the community because all of the key ingredients of growth that God has given to you by means of the Holy Spirit requires other believers. There are no lone Christians growing faithfully in Christ. We need each other. And that transformed group, they go out into the community. They become missional And by God's grace, some who hear the message place their faith and trust in Jesus. They become a worshiper. And then they get their lives changed by the gospel. And they become part of the transformation of the church. And then they go out on mission. So you see how it's a cycle that just keeps repeating if we're doing it well, if we're living it out. And that's my prayer for this place, that we would be a worshiping church a transformational church, a missional church. Here's the thing, church. Right now, we're a little more like that hose without the nozzle than the hose going through the pressure washer. But as more and more of us sign up, what I'm starting to sense is God is moving in us. There's an intensification of worship There's a love that is rekindling among ourselves as we're seeing one another. There's an enlarging heart that's happening for the lost. So let's be that power washer, huh? Let's have some impact. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your beautiful design called the church. It was your plan. It was not ours. Lord, if the church was our plan, it would be people who look just like me, think just like me, act just like me. But you have created this beautiful mosaic of individuals who are so different, yet because of Jesus, we can come together. We have the same goal. We have the same ultimate purpose. We have the same eternity ahead of us. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that you would continue to lead and guide and direct as we are regathering through this COVID-19 pandemic. May we never forget the core, the Messiah, the message, the mission, and the members. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.